0: John chapter 8. You can open your Bibles to that chapter, chapter 8 in the Gospel of John. Well known passage this morning. But the woman caught in adultery and Jesus' treatment of her, which is remarkable and so amazing and so otherworldly, so glorious, and such a healing effect for all of us as we consider what we have before us in John 8. But I want to tell you about experience I had several months ago, I went out with my buddy Rocky, my dog, went out to go for a walk, and our neighborhood is kind of like a big square, and I turned out of our driveway, and I noticed a police car driving by, and then I heard some commotion and people talking, and as we kept walking, we were going toward the commotion, and we rounded a corner, and I noticed painted in the street, giant bright yellow letters It said this child abuser and it had a big arrow aiming at one of the houses that was there around the corner as I'm walking seeing all this and of course people are out in their front lawn talking and there's all this commotion I'm thinking to myself first of all wow is that true I hope that's not true if it's true are the the children okay you know you you think that way of course and then then I'm thinking well is that was that even a warranted Allegation, Or was it a false allegation? Was someone just up to no good? And then I'm thinking, why would someone do such a thing? Why would someone do that? And as I'm walking, I'm thinking about how probably if someone had the knowledge, if someone really knew, they could literally go in front of every house and spray paint things and have an arrow aiming at the house for every house, including, including my house. I don't think any of us would want to live in a world in which that was happening in that sort of way. Kind of an abnormal type experience, right? On the other hand, in a very real sense, quite normal because that is is the way of the world. It's a world of condemnation. Constant finger pointing. Constant accusation. We know, of course, that Satan... The devil is the father of lies and also the great accuser, isn't he? He's the accuser. Condemnation. Such a regular part of all of our lives to one degree or another. It's the world we live in. What has God done to help us? What does the gospel have to say when it comes to this reality of our lives here in this world? Well, that's what we're going to consider this morning God's compassion, that's why the title of the sermon is Condemnation or Compassion. We're going to see both realities and we're going to consider, we're going to see once again that the heart of God being unfolded before us and we're all going to be impacted by his amazing grace and mercy and compassion. So the setting is, and we see this in verses 1 and 2, it says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. Now, if you recall, the last few weeks we've been talking about this Feast of Booths where people were congregating there in Jerusalem and specifically in the temple. And there were all these water ceremonies and rituals that went along with that feast. And in that context, Jesus had stood up and proclaimed himself to be the source of living water. We looked at that the last few weeks, really. In verse 37, he said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then in verse 38, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So he had just made that great proclamation. And there, there were some who, who wanted to hear more from him. And, and so as we get into John chapter 8, there are people there sitting before him, listening to him teaching. And, and what an opportunity that would have been, Right? to be there with Him and to hear from Him directly as He's unfolding the Scriptures and teaching truth and penetrating their hearts and speaking of Himself and what He would provide for them. That's what's happening. They're sitting there. They're, I'm sure they're, they're hanging on every word. I'm sure that He has a captive audience there. And as that is happening, as this profitable instruction is taking place, all of a sudden, a disruption Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. You recall the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders and, and many in the religious community, they were, they were suspicious of Jesus, and they were regularly looking for ways to trap him. They wanted to undermine his credibility. They had the Sabbath day controversy, not long ago we talked about that, and here we have another controversy, and so they say, let's, let's put him to the test, let's see what he'll do. So they drag in this woman, caught in adultery, in the very act, and, and if you picture what that must have been like for her, a uh, horrific, humiliating experience to be publicly shamed like that i'm sure she was disheveled and disoriented and she's thrown right down there before his feet and they're staring with all of their self-righteous rage and all of their skepticism regarding jesus and they put him to the test what do you what do you say now they're thinking of The Old Testament and passages like Leviticus 20, verse 10, which says if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22 says this, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. The following verses go on to mention stoning. So, in one sense, they weren't wrong in terms of the, the letter of the law and the specific instruction regarding this. And so they questioned Jesus. What what do you say, teacher? What do you do with this? Well, we're gonna see what he does with it, but before we do, just for a moment, think with me about what was happening in terms of the feelings of the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, what do you suppose they were feeling? Sort of indignation. They had caught her red handed. They believed she needed to be punished. Probably there was some sense of delight in that. In terms of seeing someone brought to justice, probably felt a little bit good about that. Well, we're cleaning, we're purging the evil from Israel. And I don't think that we would be reading too much between the lines to conclude that they were taking some sort of delight in it. It's something intoxicating, something really enjoyable about pointing our fingers at someone else who we deem less worthy than us, someone we we deem to be a worse sinner than we are. There's There's a form of enjoyment of that, appeals to our natural senses And it's the world we live in. There is condemnation happening all the time. I mean, this condemnation happening even just within ourselves so often. I've counseled so many who have experienced deep depression, crippling depression. And when you probe and ask questions about what is going through the minds of such a person, and perhaps you have struggled with depression, and haven't we all to some extent? Often you find out that the thoughts in the mind are thoughts of condemnation. I'm not this or that enough. Sometimes it's biblical categories. I, I've, I've blown it. I've stolen. I've lied. I've been sexually immoral. I've done this and I can never clean it up and I can never outlive the consequences of it and, and it can be like that. Or it can be kind of like not the law of scripture even per se, but it can be the law of culture of I'm not whatever enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not successful enough or whatever. And the thoughts just cycle through the mind and this feeling of condemnation and Final judgment of worthlessness and people can be suicidal and those types of thoughts are just filling and controlling their minds. So there's that form of condemnation. Then there's the finger pointing thing which is going on constantly, isn't it? Pointing fingers at others. I mean, who doesn't do that when you're driving down the road? (laughs) Speed limit. Stop signs, people are flying through. Red lights. I'm going 75 miles per hour in the in the right lane on the freeway, and the two lane portion of the freeway. I'm going 75 in the right lane, and someone passes me like I'm stopped. <laughs> it's Rhode Island driving for you, right? And you're th- and you're just filled with this. What are you doing? And the danger you're putting, you're putting pe- other people in danger. The- and so just, just I mean that's a form of it, and there are countless forms of it. And in the household siblings are squabbling and husband and wife are fighting and and I mean whose sin do we tend to be more bothered by our own or the other person the other person and so we point the finger when we shout out the accusations or we feel inside the accusations and we make these final judgments of people well you are a this and you are a that common human experience that all of us are very familiar with. Even places that are supposed to be judgment-free are not. I was reminded of this recently when I saw a friend posted on Facebook working out in Planet Fitness. A lot of you are familiar with that gym, and I've worked out there in the past. My wife's parents have a membership there. I've worked out there with them, and on the, on the walls in Planet Fitness, it says in big letters, judgment-free Zone." And then a friend of mine posted a picture of that on the wall, and then on the wall right next to it, it says this, gives a dictionary definition of the term lunk. A lunk is one who grunts, drops weights, or judges. And then they use it in a sentence. Ricky is slamming his weights, wearing a bodybuilding tank top, and drinking out of a gallon water jug. What a lunk. Don't be a lunk. So it's a judgment-free zone unless you're a lunk, in which case you're judged. Even places that are supposed to be judgment-free are not. Judgment, 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 condemnation, pointing the finger, putting others down. So we're going to consider compassion, thankfully. We're going to get there, but just give me a few more minutes to think one level deeper about this. Why? Why do we do it? What, what possessed that person to spray paint child abuser on the street in my neighborhood? Whether true or not true or whatever, who knows. But, but what possessed that person to do that? Why do we do it? Why all the judgment? To answer that question, we've got to turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, is where God gives us in Scripture probably the most clear and detailed diagnosis of the human heart. Paul goes very deep here to the the depths of the human heart, the human soul, and, and the root of sin, the essence of human unrighteousness. He talks about how, since the beginning, None of us have esteemed God or glorified God the way He deserves to be glorified. We have not honored Him the way He deserves to be honored. He talks about how none of us are as thankful or grateful as we ought to be for the gift of life and all that we have in life, even though it has ups and downs and it has difficult aspects to it. None of us are as thankful as we ought to be for the gifts, the many gifts, the innumerable gifts we receive from God, including the very gift of existence. He talks about how we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We prefer lies. And then he talks about how we are controlled by all unrighteousness, beginning with idolatry. We worship and serve so many other created things, more so than the creator himself. We put the gift over the giver. We all do it. And then he talks about, at the end of the chapter, this list of kind of all these manifestations of unrighteousness. And then he says something very important about the concept of death. And so look with me at verse, start in verse 28. He says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, And although they know the ordinance of God, they not only practice such things that are worthy of death, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. He says, all manifestations of unrighteousness are worthy of death. And he says, they all practice all these types of things, all the while being worthy of death. That is what is happening with people. And it still begs the question, well, what does that have to do with judging other people? Well, then you go right into chapter 2 and you see what it has to do with judging. Therefore, you have no excuse. Now, notice the change in the pronouns. It went from they, 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 they in chapter 1. And Paul knew his audience there in Rome would be saying, yes, that's correct. Yes, you're right. Yes, that's the pagans. Yes, that's the Gentiles or the bad people or the whatever they called them. Hey, yes, that's them. And then he turns it around on them. In chapter 2, much like Nathan telling David that story about the man stealing the little ewe lamb. And David says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says to him, what? You are the man. That's you, David. Paul does the same thing here. Therefore, you, Romans, you, Jeff Pierce, you fill in your name here. You have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, but do you suppose this, and catch this, do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? The reason that we do this constantly is because we have elevated ourselves. We sit as judge, jury, and executioner, and we are trying to escape the gaze, the omniscient gaze of Almighty God. We're trying to escape His judgment we're hiding. It's just, it just goes all the way back to the garden, just like Adam and Eve with the fig leaves and the covering and the hiding. And, and what did they do? They covered themselves, and which direction did they point with regard to the guilt? Adam says, uh, It was the woman you gave me. He's blaming Eve and blaming God. Well, you gave her to me. And then he comes to Eve, and she says, Well, it's the serpent pointing away. If I can point away from myself, I can somehow escape the judgment that says I am worthy of death. We were all made from dust, given life, breathed the breath, breathed the breath of life into us. We were given life, and we all use that life that God has given us to rebel against Him, to distrust Him, to question His goodness, to question His faithfulness, to minimize His worth, to put the stuff He gives us before Him. We all do it. And he says, the day you eat from that fruit you'll surely die. There's a worthiness of death. From death you came and to dust, or from, from dust you came and to dust you will return, right? And Paul says to the Romans, he's eager to preach the gospel to them. That's what this letter is. It's him writing out the gospel. What he preached in churches face to face with them is what he's writing here in Romans. And he says it all begins with an accurate diagnosis of your problem. And it's not just that you do bad things behaviorally. It's that you're filled with all unrighteousness in your disposition before your maker. You don't relate rightly to him or other people. Left to yourselves, that is the truth. And you are all worthy of death. All of you. Me included. And we judge to try to escape the sentence. Because if I can, if I can put, you've heard people say this, if I can put you down, then I can feel a little bit better about Who? About me. In my efforts to justify myself, you become a convenient, easy target. And of course, I more clearly see, it's crystal clear for me to see your sin. To see my own, now that's another story. May or may not see that, often don't. That's what's happening here in John chapter 8. And Jesus, God in the flesh, knows the charade, He knows the game that's being played. And he comes to speak truth into a living color right before them to illustrate truth. And so, let's consider his response. And even the, the question regarding the apparent discrepancy here. I mean, the law does call for execution. I just read the verses a few minutes ago. So, what's he do with it? We'll look at verse 6 again. They're saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So he writes on the ground. He says this statement about whoever is without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And then he writes on the ground again. Fascinating response. Many have pondered, what what, what did he write? I mean, what, what did he write there? And there's been all different theories about what he wrote. Probably the most popular one is that he wrote their names and maybe a list of, of their sins or something like that. And that could be. It may be hard for them to see that from where they were standing. I don't know if they're looking over his shoulder. I don't know, but could be. One, um, I'm going to share with you a verse from the Old Testament that I find fascinating. And... Can't be certain, but I think it's possible that Jesus is fulfilling this very verse from the book of Jeremiah. You don't need to turn back there, but I'm just going to read it to you. Jeremiah 17, verse 13. Before I read it to you, though, let me remind you of the context. Again, we talked about it earlier, but the Feast of Booze, the proclamation regarding the living water. God being the source of living water for his people, the Spirit being life for his people. That's the context. Now... Here Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord the spring of living water. Wow. Whether or not Jesus is directly fulfilling that verse, he is fulfilling that verse. Because they have heard the preaching of living water and they've said, ah, yeah, I don't, well, I don't know about, no, I don't think this guy is the Messiah and we need to figure out how, to, how do we trick him? How do we, I mean, how do we get him in trouble? How do we get the people to stop following this guy? And then they, hey, we've got a great idea. Let's drag this guilty woman in front of him and see if he'll fulfill the law or not. See if he'll execute her or not. All the while missing the offer of grace that's being extended to them by their Lord. Their God is right there in front of them. And they can't see Him. Blinded by their self-righteousness and their pride. Blinded by their fleshly endeavor as diagnosed by Romans 2. Their fleshly endeavor to avoid, to escape the sentence of death that's over them. Personally, individually. From dust to dust. Came from the dust one day to dust will return. And there is Jesus writing in the dust of people who, in and of themselves, are only dust. So what of the apparent discrepancy the law does call for execution? Is Jesus guilty? This is another example of Him, like when He broke the Sabbath day observance from their perspective. I think the key to unlocking this is found in John chapter 1. Turn to John chapter 1. And notice verses 16 and 17. For of His fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. The old covenant arrangement between God and His people. The covenant in which God says, look, if you'll obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. Hey, here's your chance, folks. Here's the law. I'll even simplify it for you, I'll give you the Ten Commandments, I'll give you some other instructions, and you just go and do that. And if you can do that, you'll live. And every single human being, back then and today, can only be condemned by the law. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the letter kills. It's only the Spirit that gives life. The intent of that Old Testament law was to humble people. To humble the Israelites, let's start with them. To the humble the Israelites that they may be longing for their Messiah. That they might see, I am worthy of death and I need a substitute. I need a Savior. They might realize their need. You see, the old covenant paved the way for the new. It goes from this sense of demand to this sense of provision through Jesus. What would have been fitting would would be for them to be crying out for the Messiah. And when Jesus arrives, say, he's finally here. Let me drink of this living water. I put my trust in you. You're all I've got for life. I can't work my way to life. I I can't take care of my own sentence of death. I can't work my way out of that. I need you. That would be the fitting response. And there they were, missing it. Missing what was happening right before them. Missing the offer being extended to them. And so, Jesus writes on the ground and he says, whoever's without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. We'll continue on and look at what he What he does there with with the woman says when they heard it, verse 9, they began to go out one by one beginning with the older ones and he he was left alone with the woman where she was in the center of the court. Let me pause here for a moment. Just interesting, is it not? I mean, they literally had stones in their hands. And when he turns it back around on them and makes them consider their own guilt and their own shame And their own unworthiness, it says starting with the oldest, what did they do with those stones? They were so eager, looking forward to hurling the stones at this guilty woman. And when Jesus turned it back around them and when he looked at them with those penetrating eyes, one by one, they dropped the stones and walked away. As that text in Jeremiah says, they will be sent away in shame. The shame of rejecting their Messiah. With Supposedly with a loyalty to Moses and a loyalty to the law, they didn't even realize the true interpretation of the law. They still believed, as Paul says later in Romans, they believed that righteousness was by law. And when you believe that righteousness is by law, you will quickly condemn the people around you and feel fully justified in doing so. Now, we all do it. But there's a difference between doing it with an awareness of the problem and doing it thinking that you're fully justified in doing it. And this was a a righteousness before law mentality. And Jesus turned it around on them and revealed their own guilt. And they walked away. He shielded this woman. Look what happens next. As she sits there in the center of the court at his feet. And it says, straightening up, Jesus said to her woman, Where are they? In the I think it's the King James, where are thine accusers? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I did not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Pronounces her condemnation free. He speaks to her the truth, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God tells us we have His righteousness, His covering. Do you find yourself there this morning sitting before Christ with guilt, knowing, you know, I had a terrible attitude today been ungrateful i mean we can use the obvious categories you know i don't know drug abuse and adultery and some of the ones that we might consider big ones but but there's all of this that god says all of what is appropriate in relate, relating rightly to him and others and if we evaluate it that way boy i mean how who among us is not guilty we would sit right there with that one, right, right there. Yes, Lord, I need covering. I need your forgiveness. I need you to pronounce no condemnation, because if it's up to me, that's is just condemnation. You I mean, think about the the description of Romans one and how he talked about things like gratitude and contentment and, and all of that, and. I don't know, just for a moment, just to help you appreciate this amazing covering, to be shielded by Jesus, just for a moment to appreciate that in this dog eat dog world in which everyone else would gladly throw a stone at you. In this context, think about I mean, what grade would you give yourself on your level of thankfulness? What grade would you give yourself regarding joy? The Bible says throughout, rejoice always. Joy. What grade? How are you doing with that? Contentment, the opposite of, of greed and wanting, whether it's material things, wanting what my neighbor has, wanting, wanting this to be better, that to be better, wanting my household to be better, the church to be better, my car to be better. This. I mean, what grade would you give yourself? Oh, yeah, by the way, remember... God doesn't give letter grades, and he doesn't grade on a curve. It's pass or fail. 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 And you have a creator God who says, I love you cover you and you're fully righteous and yes in one sense everything is wrong with you and in a very real sense and in even a greater sense because of the glory of jesus nothing is wrong with you and you're going to know that in fullness forever as soon as you get home and so for now as you live in this world with the constant barrage of accusations coming from yourself. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. I blew it here. I blew it there. Whether it's that barrage or from other people pointing the finger at you. You're not this enough or that enough or the other thing enough. I mean, whatever, wherever that barrage comes from to know that God says to you through Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. I mean, whose voice matters more? And that's what he says. And that is awesome. Awesome. Later, Romans 8, Paul says, who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus as he who died? Yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who intercedes for you every moment. Father, he belongs to me, and she belongs to me, and that one belongs to me, and they are right, and they are covered, and they are cleansed, and they are pure. And he says to her, go and sin no more. And we think, well, how can that be? You just gave her like this this tremendous, you just broke the chains off and set her free. There's a story told, I don't know if it's true or not, it's a great illustration. During the era, sadly, the tragic era in our history of of the slave trades. There's a story told of a master who went to where they were selling slaves and he he purchased a slave for a high, high price and and the slave began to walk with him and he took off the chains and said, go ahead, go free. And and the slave said, what what do you mean? Go free, What, what do you mean? Can I just leave? Yeah, go ahead, you can leave. You're telling me I can go wherever and do whatever? Yeah. Then I will go with you. You see that? You see the power of love? That's why Paul says in Romans Sin will not have mastery over you because you are not under the law, but under what? Grace. To know that kind of love is to be transformed. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are conformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another by beholding. Does that mean we're always going to be able to clean everything up in the other? No. Does it mean we're not going to fail anymore? No. Does it mean we're not going to have thoughts of judgment going through our minds anymore? No, because we all still do, because the flesh is the flesh, and it's doing what it's doing. It's doing the Romans 2 thing, trying to cover for itself, trying to justify itself, trying to elevate itself. It's it's going to do that stuff, and you can know and hear and believe when Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Love as I've loved you. Let that transform the way you look at the sinners around you. Because every person you're called to love is a sinner. <laughs> and this is the leveler. This is the, the truth that levels the field. And this is the way that God helps us to appreciate our need for the Spirit and to trust in the Spirit and all that He can do, producing the fruits of life, the living water. This is what He talked about when He said You'll flow with rivers of living water. It's the Spirit. So, as we close, with whom do you identify more readily? The woman caught in adultery or the Pharisees with the stone stones in their hands? To be honest, sometimes I identify with both. Sometimes more so the woman. I see my own guilt and I have feelings of remorse over that and I have to Go to God with that and ask for mercy and thank Him for His mercy with that and go to other people and apologize to them. Other times I identify more with the Pharisees when uh, driving down the road or (laughs) encountering people who have a different uh, political viewpoint than me or I feel like are making foolish decisions, who make life difficult for me. Man, the condemnation wells up pretty quick. And by the way, just as a footnote, because I know some of you are thinking, wait a minute, doesn't it say, Paul says elsewhere, we're to judge those within the church? Yes, like we're dealing with sin, and that's what, in a shepherding capacity, that's what we do. But do you see how this sets the tone of all of that? Do you see how this, when, when I am, a, as a human being, am dispatched by God to address the sin of another person in a pastoral counseling meeting or somewhere else or in my family, do you see how it sets the tone when I realize, hey, I'm no better? Inherently. I'm just as worthy of death as you are. They had cherry-picked this one law regarding adultery. What about all the laws about uh, execution for disobeying parents and so many other things in the Old Covenant that so many were guilty of? When you look at the spirit of the law, everybody was guilty of it. Jesus made that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. I say it's not just about committing adultery, but even if you look with lust, you're guilty. It's not just about murdering someone, but even if you have anger, you're guilty. So everybody's guilty. Everybody's worthy of death. And we have a God who freely gives life. So, yeah, we address sin of other people. We're called to do that. But this changes everything. And it begins with this amazement that if we were there back then, there's a part of us that could identify with the Pharisee with the stone in hand. There's a part of us that could just sit there with that woman and say, Lord, I... I, there's nowhere I can go here. I can't escape. I want to escape. I want to cover, but I can't. It's just, yeah, it's true. I failed in that way. God, I failed to appreciate you. I failed to be grateful. I failed to serve others according to your good way. To have God love and accept and cover uh, is amazing. We're amazed. We are truly amazed. Thank you so much, God, for invading our world. Thank you so much for invading our minds and our hearts. Thank you so much for showing us the way of love. Thank you so much for satisfying even your perfect demand for us and your perfect judgment you've satisfied. The verdict of death has been propitiated that we are at one with you, reconciled to you. We can live purely before you. We can live and love and laugh and play and dance because we are loved by you. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name.